please turn in your Bibles with me and follow along as I read aloud today's scripture passage from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. In a room like this, I don't think I would have to work very hard to convince most of you that we live in a time when marriage is not taken very seriously. I mean, all you got to do is get on wherever it is that you go for your news, and you see that yet another celebrity couple is calling it quits. Or you get on a sports website and see sadly that another NFL star has abused his wife. Regularly marriages starting, but seemingly just as regularly marriages ending. We see people jumping from marriage to marriage with much the same patterns as they started in junior high. When they started dating you know, you get hot and excited for somebody, and you couple up, and it's no longer exciting, and so you break up. Sadly, we live in a time where casual sex is the norm. Now, young people refer to something designed by God as a covenant renewal, and they refer to it as offhanded as hooking up, or friends with benefits. And we could go on and on here, couldn't we? We now use the term marriage to describe something that takes place between a man and a man, or between a woman and a woman, which is indeed a slippery slope, because if you use the same logic to get there, it could eventually be marriage between a man and his pet. But here's, here's something that we need to be clear on. There's really no problem with any of that, okay? If you have any problems with any of the things I just described, it's probably just because your parents raised you a certain way. None of this is a problem, not even when you continue down the slippery slope to where it's going to lead, unless God has spoken. And if God has indeed spoken on these issues, as we know he has, then societal norms cannot be our guide. 
What your college biology professor tells you cannot be your guide. What your friend tells you or even what your mama tells you is not ultimately our guide. For the Christian, God's holy and inspired word is our ultimate authority over all things. And the scriptures are not silent on these issues. This morning, we are going to see that from the very beginning, God ordained marriage as something that is very good. He created the one flesh covenant union between one man and one woman. And that from before the foundation of the world, that union was created to point to another union. That is the union between Christ and the church. And it's my prayer that in our time this morning will not only cause us to think about our own marriages more biblically, but even more important, yes, even more important than our marriages, is that it will encourage us profoundly when we think through some of the staggering implications of the fact that marriage is pointing to the marriage between Christ and His bride, the church. So, if you're not there with me, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to work through the text that was just read for us. As we look at this passage, there's a lot we could say. Easily a hundred different rabbit trails that we could venture off on. And perhaps you're going to end up disappointed that I don't chase some of the, the rabbit trails, but I want to make sure that we focus on the main point of the passage and where the main point is going from the standpoint of the whole Bible. In so doing, I want to start with the clearest thing we can say about this text, and that is the fact that this union between Adam and Eve was God's own doing. Marriage between one man and one woman is God's design. And it was that way from the very beginning, as we see here in this text. If you look at your outline, I have six things that I want to highlight on this first point. First, notice God says it is not good for the man to be alone. Adam doesn't go seeking God out in the garden. And tell God that he's, that he's lonely. In fact, you read the text, it says nothing about Adam being lonely. Making some theological argument that Adam was lonely goes beyond this passage. What's, what's clear in this text, and indeed very striking, if you're reading through the book of Genesis, is that God says something is not good. You, you start in Genesis 1, big picture uh, creation, and there he creates all things in six days, and over and over again, we read that God says, it is good, it is good, it is good. Indeed, by the end of the chapter, after creating mankind, making a male and female, he says, it is very good. The last week, we said chapter 2 is a zoom lens onto this sixth day of creation, giving more detail as to what happened there, really setting the table for the rest of the biblical narrative. And here we're clearly before the very good. 
here the reader is taken by surprise because you've got some really cool stuff going on, don't you? You see God fashioning, right? That man, the master potter, and then he breathes life into his nostrils. He lovingly takes him and places him into his perfect place, the Garden of Eden. And then rather abruptly, God looks and says, it's not good. Specifically, it is not good for the man to be alone. And the point is, this idea of marriage is not simply the result of random chance and mutation. Men and women, coupling up, if you will, is not mere biology. It's not just the results of raging hormones. The pain and anguish betrayed lovers feel is not just because society tells us it should be a certain way. No, we see here this was God's idea from the very beginning. It is not good for the man to be alone, he says. And then he God takes the initiative in doing something about it. God not only states that it's not good, he takes action. He says, I will make him a helper who is fit or suitable for him. And we'll comment on this idea of suitable helper in in a bit, but for now, I want to stay focused on this idea of God taking all the initiative. And notice God brings clarity to the man that he needs a woman. And he does it in a most peculiar way, though how else would you do it if there's no other humans on the earth? If you look back at the text, we see that God brings all the animals to Adam. We see in the text that Adam names them, demonstrating his dominion over them, already beginning to fulfill that part of the commission from from 128. But that's not really the main point here. The main point of God bringing the animals to Adam is not to try to figure out what names he gave each one of them or how long this scene would have taken. No, the main point comes in the second part of verse 20 where it's clear God uses to demonstrate to the man that there was not found a helper fit for him. Man's best friend is said to be a dog. I I like dogs. I, I have one. He's great. But A cat or a dog or any other animal is not a helper fit for the man. And something about this process awakens this reality for Adam. Thus, we continue to see that God stands behind every tiny bit of this as God's inspired word now tells us that God performs the first surgery, if you will. He he works another miracle, another, another miracle of creation. Again, God's purposefulness in marriage is is on display. The text says that he causes the man to go into a deep sleep. A man would have no say in this matter. He wouldn't even be a spectator here for God's work. God causes a deep sleep to come over the man. He then removes a, a piece of his side, almost certainly referring to one of his ribs, and then he builds the woman from that piece of the man. The same word the ESV translates made is used in Psalm 78 for God building his sanctuary. Or again in Amos 9 for God building his heavenly sanctuary. So so here the Lord takes part of the man and he, he builds the woman. He takes a piece of the man and he fashions it into the woman thus highlighting the very, very close relationship between the man and the woman, and in fact, between every 
one man, one woman covenant marriage. And Adam gets this. And when he sees her, he says, this is now my own flesh and bone. Ken Matthews says, quote, the symbolic significance of the rib is that the man and woman are fit for one another as companions, sexually and socially, end quote. And this idea of the man and woman being of the same stuff is picked up on by Paul in Ephesians 5 in his argument that the man loving his wife is actually part and parcel of loving himself because she is indeed a part of him. And we'll come back to that idea in a bit. For now, the point is that this is God's idea. This is, this is God's doing. And we can go further with this, can't we? For, for, for we see very specifically that the one flesh union is God's doing. Notice in verse 22 that God brings the woman to the man. And don't miss the divine commentary. After Adam exclaims that the woman is bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, Moses says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I should point out that when Jesus comments on this in Matthew 19, he, he, he clearly understood the divine inspiration of Scripture. Because while you could say Moses said that, Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, right? He's attributing that directly to God. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So this one flesh union between the man and the woman is God's own doing. Which is why Jesus goes on to say, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And for those who are married, this has huge implications. And perhaps you thought you were the grand planner behind your wedding. Maybe you planned this awesome shindig wedding or whatever. Uh, perhaps you were a woman shopping for a man or a man hunting for a wife. And all that may be true, but at the end of the day, if you're married, it is because God brought you together with your spouse, which is why he says God made them male and female and what God has joined together, let no man separate. Again, this whole idea of marriage is God's own doing. It's his design. And, and, and I think we need to pause here for a very important implication to this, given the culture that we find ourselves in now. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because it's not the main point, but I think we at least have to acknowledge this clear implication, and that is same-sex marriage is an abrogation of God's design. It, it actually makes a mockery of it. The text, indeed the rest of Scripture, is very clear here. God did not create another man for Adam as a helper fit for him. He created a woman. He created the man and the woman to fit together. The union between the man and the woman was to produce offspring that would fill the whole earth with the image of God, part of God's original commission to His people. And I would submit to you that the only way to argue for homosexual marriage is to insist that God has not spoken. 
See, the idea of two same-sex Christians, that they could be married, that, that flies in the face of the very book that we say is our final authority. But one simply cannot argue that they're a homosexual Christian and that the Bible teaches that that's okay. In fact, that it's good and right. It, it doesn't, right? We have to be willing to stand where the Bible says stand. The Bible condemns it just like it condemns other forms of sexual immorality. In Romans 1, for example, homosexuality is an illustration of God's judgment. There you see in the text God giving people over to their sins, sort of a you want it, you got it. And so he turns them over. He, he turns them over with homosexuality being the result. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, in a list along with other sins, Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Can I just be clear? Will not inherit the kingdom of God means they are not Christian because every single Christian inherits the kingdom of God. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, neither the sexually immoral, that's heterosexual sexual immorality, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's it's very clear. And it goes all the way back to creation. It goes all the way back to God being God. God being the grand designer. And when he created the first man and first woman, male and female... He demonstrated this was his plan from the beginning, that marriage be between one man and one woman so long as they both shall live. And if marriage does indeed get its beginning here, as God's holy and inspired word tells us, then biblically speaking, there are no marriages that are not between one man and one woman. Two women, for example, having a ceremony can call it marriage according to the state but not according to the Bible. The state can sanction all kinds of things that contradict the Bible, and in fact it does. But we must be clear, regardless of what the state says, even if they get a marriage license, two people pronounced Mr. and Mr. or Mrs. and Mrs. according to God's Word are not married. That being said, while we must be clear here as Christians, especially as culture continues to pressure us to reject that and say, no, 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 it's fine. And in fact, to celebrate, while we must say clear, stand firm, I think we also need to consider the counterbalance to our standing firm. And that is, I think we need to recognize that the church has often failed in our ministry to those who struggle with the sin of homosexuality. I think as a general rule, the church has tended to be homophobic, treating homosexuality as though it's the unpardonable sin, as though it's worse than unbelief itself, right? Certainly, in our minds, as though it's worse than adultery or casual heterosexual sex. But think back to 1 Corinthians 6 that we just read. Paul Paul links all sexual sin together and makes it clear that Those who practice such things, those whose lifestyles are characterized by those things, 
outside of repentance and faith in Christ, Paul says, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And so we need to learn and grow as a church how to love and minister the gospel to our friends who struggle with the sin of homosexuality, just as we do our friends who go out to the club and hook up with someone they meet at the bar. Right? The glorious reality is there is hope for all of us in Christ, which is why Paul says in that same 1 Corinthians 6 passage, remember, he goes through the list, and then if you were to read on, he would say, and such were some of you. You were in homosexual relationships. You were adulterers. You were fornicators. He says, but, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, our glorious God is a God who picks all of us up from the pit of our own sin and by His grace wipes our sin away through the blood of Jesus and then slowly transforms us day by day by day into Christ's likeness for His glory. And I wish I had more time, but like I said, that's not the main point of the sermon, and so we're going to move on. Marriage, according to Holy Scripture, is the union between one man and one woman, and that's by God's design. And as we think about God's design, it's also important that we see in the text that while we are very similar, male and female, we are also different by God's design. Yeah, at one level, this is a no-brainer, and at another level, this is something that has come under fire, certainly in culture and even in the church. The no-brainer aspect of the different by design can be seen just in our appearance, right? Men and women resemble one another far more than any of us resemble a honey badger or something else, right? But, but when we're compared to one another, we're, we're obviously different. We're both made in the image of God, yes, and yet God created us male and female sexually. He created us differently for sexual enjoyment within the context of marriage and for procreation, which is obviously part of the original commission of Genesis 1.28. And we don't need to spend a ton of time on that aspect because... I trust we've all had Biology 101, and we've already talked about the original commission back when we covered chapter 1. But the key point that I do want to spend some time focusing on, it's highlighted here in the text that's come under fire today, is that man and woman were created different by God's design to fulfill different roles in this one flesh union. And we see that very clearly in verses 18 and 20. In verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then after parading all the animals before Adam in verse 20, we read, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. The text is clear. Eve was created to be a helper to Adam. The text says that she was a helper fit for Adam. And the word translated fit or suitable highlights their similarity already discussed. The man and woman both share in essential humanness. Again, we're both created in the image of God. The fact that Eve is said to be Adam's helper, on the other hand, highlights the difference in the role she would play. The word helper has the basic meaning of one who gives aid or support. Now, That in no way means that she's inferior to the man. 
but her role is to provide strength in the areas where the man is weak so that the two actually complement one another, which is where we get the idea of complementarian theology as opposed to egalitarian theology. Egalitarian theology would wrestle with these texts, and at the end of the day, they would say, no, man and woman are completely equal, equal in essence, and equal in role, and so none, whether in the home or in the church, should be construed as the leader or whatever, because they're equal. Complementarian theology, pivoting off of the idea of the husband created as the leader, says, no, by God's design, man and woman are created equal in essence, yes, but different in role, right? God has given us different roles with the husband called to lead and the wife called to follow, and, and so living these out, we actually complement one another. And of course, the New Testament picks up on this, grounding their theology in none other than creation itself. And so Paul, for instance, in a text that we're going to look at in a minute, says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and that the wife is to submit to her husband, to place herself under the leadership of her husband as the church submits to Christ. So the husband is to lovingly lead his wife The wife serves as his helper and follows his lead, and together, the couple complement one another, right? The two are stronger together. And so we see in God's very good creation that God created them male and female, and that part of this very good, glorious design is that they would have different roles that complement one another. And I want to jump to Ephesians 5 really bad right now, but before we do that, I want to look at one more thing perhaps a category-changing component of marriage that's here in this text, and that's the idea that marriage between one man and one woman is a covenant. It's a covenant. Look back at the text. Every marriage, every marriage is going to have its ups and downs. Marriage is difficult because you bring two sinners under the same roof in the closest possible union two human beings can have. You can't hide. You see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And at the end of the day, what holds a marriage together is not romance. It's not sexual desire. It's not even the children. It is the fact that marriage is a covenant between a husband and a wife that was ordained by God. And we see this idea of covenant here in the text. In Genesis 2.24, God says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. The words leave and hold fast or the old leave and cleave are words commonly used in the context of covenant, indicating the breaking of a covenant with the term leave and fidelity to the covenant with the term cleave or hold fast. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 28, we see the word leave as a breaking of the covenant when we read, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken or left me. And he says, because you've forsaken the covenant. In Deuteronomy 1020, you see the positive side of that. Uh, the word hold fast or cleave is seen for covenant keeping. 
Here we read, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast or cleave to him. And by his name, you shall swear. Now, this is why the later Old Testament writers would speak very clearly of marriage as covenant. And so, for example, in Malachi 2, 13 through 14, we read, the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Jesus clearly believed and taught this. I already quoted from Matthew 19, but it bears repeating. In interacting with questions about marriage and whether or not it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife, Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And this this category of covenant explodes with wonder and glory when we see Paul pick it up in Ephesians 5. And I, I do invite you to flip over there with me. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to pick this passage up in verse 18 to get into the flow of it. Here Paul says, don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Results of being filled with the Spirit are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, speaking, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And when we went through this in our Ephesians study, I said there's a lot that he's about to go into now that husband can't do. This is talking about Christ and his church. He's elaborating. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is Jesus giving himself up for the church. That he, Jesus, might sanctify her, the church. Having cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. See this tie with Genesis. But nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, verse 32 is huge. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And there's so much here. If, if this is a passage that you've wrestled with, we covered it when we covered uh, Ephesians a few months ago. It's on our website. I would commend that to you. But for our purposes this morning, it's important to see that in verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. And then in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. 
And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And what's so very important for us here is that Paul is telling us that marriage that we see was ordained at the very beginning of creation is patterned after Christ's covenant with his church. Remember, Jesus comes on the scene. He often referred to himself as the bridegroom. He is, in fact, the ultimate bridegroom who came for his bride, the church, and the dowry he paid for her, if you will, was his own blood shed to bring about the new covenant with his bride. That's what we're going to celebrate momentarily when we get to the Lord's Supper. This is the cup poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood, he says. We know from Jeremiah 31 that this new covenant would not be like the old covenant. There would be discontinuity between the covenants. One of them is the breakability of the covenant, right? The new covenant would be unbreakable. Christ would not break his covenant with his bride. And because those who are in Christ have God's very spirit dwelling in them, not one of them, not one of those that Jesus died for, would ever break the covenant by walking away from the bridegroom, for all who are truly in Christ will most assuredly persevere to the end. And so, in glorious fashion, we see that this covenant of marriage ordained by God in the very beginning was to point us to the covenant Christ has with His church. Amazing. So, point us to the gospel. And so, like last week, we see that the writer of Genesis right here at the beginning, is is creating categories for us that work their way all the way through the Bible. Remember, we said at the beginning of our Genesis study that the whole Bible, from, from Genesis to Revelation, is all about Jesus. It's all pointing us to Christ. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, we see God created them male and female. And by the way, you lose that, you lose all of it. You lose the male and female, you lose Christ in the church. Right? God created them male and female. He ordained marriage, one man, one woman, to live in covenant fidelity to one another with the husband leading, the wife serving as his helper, following his leadership, all for the purpose, Paul tells us, as the divinely inspired commentator, all for the purpose of pointing us to the glorious union between Christ and the church. That means when we look at a married couple in love, We should think about the great and awesome love Christ has for his church. When we see a husband sacrifice for his bride, we should think about Christ sacrificing for his church. Ever think about that? Marriage should cause us to think about the cross. When that husband lays down his own prerogatives to serve his bride, we're reminded Jesus laid down his own prerogatives, didn't he? He didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself for his bride. He emptied himself by taking on flesh. He emptied himself by adding humanity to his deity. He humbled himself for his bride, going to the cross, dying for his people. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, I would plead with you to look to Christ today. I would plead with you, confess your sin, your rebellion, trust in Jesus. Be a part of the new covenant He offers all of us to come into. Submit to Him 
as our ultimate bridegroom, as our king. And brothers and sisters, I would submit to you, this is here, and it should cause us to marvel. We read this text, this should cause us to rejoice. We should marvel at the fact that marriage, established thousands of years before Jesus, was always all about pointing people to the relationship God the Son has with His church. It's amazing. From the very beginning, the gospel, the good news of God redeeming sinful people has always been on display. And so my concluding application today is let us meditate on this. Let this be something we really soak on. Not not just to think about so that we have a new theological category. But to really think about it. Meditate on it. So that it honestly heightens our affections for God. See, I, I think sometimes we get so caught up in fighting for a particular aspect of our sanctification that maybe we don't marvel at the gospel and really find our joy here. Perhaps, perhaps I'm just speaking of myself, but I don't think so. Ask yourself this question. Where do you derive your joy in your Christian walk? Is it primarily, not only, but primarily when you've accomplished something? And maybe you've finished a Bible reading plan. There's a lot of excitement in that. There's a lot of joy. Maybe it was witnessing to a coworker. Well, you come out of something like that and there's, there's an excitement, a fulfillment there. Maybe, maybe it's, you've seen victory in a particular area of your life. Jesus in Luke 10, in what has become one of my favorite passages, he, he sends out 72 for ministry, and he checks in on them on their return, and he has some helpful counsel for them and for us. Perhaps you remember the story. They, they, they go out, sent out by Jesus for ministry, and, and they do some amazing things, and they see God work in literally miraculous ways. And upon their return, they ecstatically proclaim, Lord, even the demons were, were subject to us in your name. In other words, we did some awesome stuff out there, Jesus. It was amazing. Do you remember what Jesus says? He said... I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is so encouraging. We could, we could paraphrase this for our purposes. Don't, don't seek to find your joy in the highs and lows of the mission we've been sent on. And, the, and there are highs and there are lows. He says, no, find your joy ultimately. That, that Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, came on a mission of love and has made you a part of his new covenant. Your name is written in heaven. Jesus went to great lengths to purchase a bride for himself, the dowry he paid, if I can use that language, is his own blood. And he's thrilled with his bride. And he will be for all eternity. And Christian, we need to not stop basking in this. For it's easy to miss the boat here and focus on so many other things, even good things. I can tell you right now, I get so focused on ministry that this is easy for me to miss. 
We get so focused on doing that we don't rejoice in what's already been done. And here I'm saying we want to take Jesus' advice. Don't rejoice in these things alone. I don't think he's saying don't rejoice in them at all, right? We can certainly rejoice when somebody comes to faith in Christ or you see the Lord working through the Spirit in areas of sanctification. But he's saying that's not ultimate. Rejoice. Find joy. Delight. That your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus came and purchased you with his blood and made you a part of his bride, the church. And because of that, you will have a place at the great marriage banquet of the Lamb that will be an eternal banquet. Jesus shed his blood for you, for, for me, to make us his own. Don't forget to marvel. Don't ever stop thanking him. For the day we do will be the day we find ourselves discouraged looking for something else to provide that joy that only He can truly provide, right? That's when we start going after cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water when He stands there, the fountain of living water. So brothers and sisters, may we look to Christ, what He's done, thinking about the fact that the whole Bible just wants to constantly take our gaze to the gospel and rejoice and thank Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your amazing grace. Lord, as we now turn our attention to the table, I pray, Father, that, Lord, as we consider, Lord, this real, tangible lesson you've given us, this time of remembering, I pray that you would minister to us through this time. And we thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.